told to hold this mic close to me. I'm not in love with it. It's just being obedient here. Okay. You know, you know, you do things on the internet, and different things come up. And this came up as four things that really set the early church on fire. And one thing it said is, prayer is not powerful. The one to whom we pray to is. Every religion prays to false gods, except the one we pray to, the one true God. This morning, you know, James says you, ask, you receive not because you ask not. This morning as I pray, we have a lot in our congregation who are dealing with illnesses where there is no cure. It's terminal, no hope. This morning I'm here to say there is hope in God. And it's not based on the power of my prayer. We're going to count on the one to whom we're speaking to. God chooses to heal. We're not the one who chooses. So what I want to ask you this morning is if you have someone that has anything terminal, if you'll put your palm out, palm up to receive, uh, as, as I pray, uh, if the Lord wants to do it, we're, we're giving him opportunity. A lot of times we don't give him opportunity because we don't ask in faith. So the, my prayer this morning is not the power of my prayer, but the one I'm going to be praying to. When Peter and John went into that temple, the guy who was wanting healing didn't know who Peter was. They were expecting money. So it's not the who is praying or the who is asking, but the one to whom we are asking. Let's pray. Father God, you are Father. You are creator of everything. There is nothing that has been created that you did not create. We, ha we serve the only uncreated God. You always was always will be. And Father, this morning, in obedience to you, we are coming by faith in the one to whom we are asking. Father, there, I don't know, I know a few that have terminal situations, but there are many in the sound of my voice that I don't know anything about. But Father, you know everything. So right now, Father, I pray in the name of Jesus, those that you choose to touch right now, those who have their hands, their palms up to receive for a loved one or for themselves. Father, grant it. Grant it in the name of Jesus. Father, you said that anything we ask believing in your name, you would do it. And Father, when you don't do it, there's a higher reason. We're not going to put you in a box this morning. But, Father, I just pray, show your mightiness, signs and wonders and even healings of the uh, what doesn't seem to be possible is more for unbelievers than for believers. But, Father, there's many of us in the church that have become more unbelieving than we have believing. So, Father God, I ask, renew through your working of your power this morning in the hearts of those who are ill and don't have a clue, or hope. Father, we sing that song, We're Desperate for You, and I've sang it before and wondered, Lord, am I desperate? Father, those in these, in these terminal situations are desperate. They're desperate sometimes for the medical people to have an answer that they don't have an answer. I'm praying for those, Father, that you choose to touch. In the name of Jesus, let it be done according to to your precious will, and no weapon formed against us will prosper. Father, let us leave here today believing that we serve a God who hears and not only can do, but chooses to do on our behalf. Lord, we love you. Forgive us when we do not stand in faith as we should. Forgive me when I don't. Lord, increase our obedience so our faith can grow. 
In the name of our precious Lord, amen. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Well, good morning, and thank you for joining us for worship this morning. Um, and there's some out in the gymnasium for overflow. And I'll just remind you, this is our, this is our plan for right now. We have two services, 9-15, 10-30, and with overflow in the gymnasium for both services. And so thank you for being here. Thank you for being flexible and uh, adjusting um, for the time being. The good news is we had a team out working in our um, front building this week, and they got a good start on some things, and uh, that will continue over the next few weeks. We don't have an exact date yet of when we will be back in our main building and sanctuary, um, so we're going to have to remain flexible for, uh, for a number of more weeks. Our goal is sometime in April, though, still. That, that is what we are uh, hoping towards and moving towards to the best of our ability. But thank you for your flexibility in the interim. Uh, a couple things going on in the life of the church for you to know about. Next Sunday, the 27th, we will have a dinner and meeting in the gymnasium right over here. And what that, how that will play out is part of it is going to be a chili cook-off, so there are prizes, there is, a, there is a competition involved in this, and we've already had a number of people sign up to bring chili. We also do have a sign-up sheet in the lobby, or in the gymnasium, uh, our big lobby. You can sign up to bring other food too, because we, it is going to be a full dinner. So we have enough pots of chili right now, but if you want to bring some sandwiches or sides, desserts, those sort of things, we need sign-ups for those. You do not have to sign up to attend the meeting. Um, you also don't have to be a member to attend the meeting. It, it is a congregational meeting where we will be discussing certain items um, relating to business and issues within our congregation, um, but visitors are welcome there, too, to hear about updates in the life of the church. And then uh, the following Sunday, on March the 6th, we will have a new members' lunch, um, and that will be immediately after the service. And on Saturday, March 5th, we'll have a, just a fellowship event that's going to be in this building. And what this is, I told you last week about an event that was actually at the Joyce's house, a game day at their house. Uh, these things are going to keep coming about once a month. I think it's the first Saturday of every month is the plan. And it's hosted by the Joyce's Life Group, but you don't have to be in that life group. The goal of these is to allow people that um, haven't gotten to know a lot of other people in the church just a simple, fun fellowship event. And so... Uh, Saturday, March the 5th, will be in the gymnasium um, and in this, this building in general. And we'll keep reminding you of that. And then um, lastly on the list is Saturday, March 12th, is our Rebuilding Hope Workday. We've got about 15 or 16 names on the sign-up list for that out in the lobby. And, uh, it, but we still need you to sign up if um, you can be able to help that day. Uh, we will close the sign-ups a week from today. So the 27th will be the last Sunday to sign up for that. So please, if you can help, whether you are a skilled laborer or unskilled laborer, we need you that day. We know we have at least one wheelchair ramp that we're going to build, but we have more than enough people to build a wheel wheelchair ramp, which is great news. And so we're going to have at least two teams working that day on two different projects. And so we would love to have three teams. We'd love to have more people and have three or four different projects going at once or be able to tackle a significantly larger project if we have enough people. So please, um, the sign-up sheet for that work day and for the uh, congregational meeting food, um, both of those are out in the lobby. Um, now, um, one uh, last thing um, we have uh, if you come to the congregational meeting next week, you'll hear about the various missionaries and ministries that we support in our community and around the world, and um, know that it's important to us that our ministry is not just happening in the church, but outside the four walls of the church, in the community, and abroad. And so I wanted to just give a brief mention that one of those individuals, whom we have sponsored for a very long time, had a very big day yesterday and you should all say something to him at the end of the service. But yesterday was Richard Steele's 80th birthday. And so on your way out today, say happy birthday to Richard. I am not going to sing to him right now, but you're welcome to after the service. So happy birthday, Richard. Now turn with me to Luke chapter 19. Um, and as we're turning there, I'm going to get this whatever it is out of my eye, so I'm not blinking the whole time. Um, but now we'll turn to Luke chapter 9. And we are going to talk about Bruno. And if you get that reference, then your house, like mine, has been a little bit too full of this movie 
that's come out and just sort of taken the childhood culture by storm um, in Kanto, which I have memorized every song of, not according to my will, but just it so happens. When the songs play in your house all the time, you just learn things and you pick up on things. So in our house, we either have the movie going or we have the soundtrack going, and it's great music. Like, don't get me wrong. It's great music. It's a fun story, and it's a, it's a movie about miracles. And in the movie, there's this family that receives a big miracle and then it's sort of a series of miracles that the family then uses to help the community around them. But the key figure in the story is one little girl who seems to be missing out on the miracle. And so the search in the movie for her is about why she's left out and is she going to receive a miracle herself? Is she going to be a part of what is going on in the miracle of the whole family. And I'm reminded of that because I've been involved in a series of conversations recently where the best I can do is look at somebody in the face, either across a lunch table or in a counseling situation or in some meeting of some sort, and say, you know what you need? You, you need a miracle. Because at the end of the day, some of our crises are so significant, we need miracles in order to to get across that, that bridge, that chasm that we cannot cross on our own. It's not that you need a better strategy. It's not that you need better problem solving. It's not that you need more wisdom. It's that sometimes a problem is so significant, you really need God to show up. And so as I'm having these conversations, I keep having this refrain in my mind from this kid's movie about searching and waiting for a miracle. And we come into the passage this week, and there's a miracle. And, and it's a miracle that Jesus stated last week in our passage that this would be almost impossible for this thing to happen. And then it happens. Luke 18 ends with Jesus talking about, in this interaction with this guy, Jesus looks at this guy and says, here's what you lack. Go do this one thing, and then you can enter into the kingdom. And he can't do it. And Jesus tells him, give all you have and give it to the poor. And the guy says, no. And he walks away saddened by Jesus' requirement of him. And Jesus then looks at his disciples, and he says, boy, it would take a miracle for a rich man to enter into heaven. And he says it by saying, it's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle, which would be a miracle, it's easier for a camel to enter through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. And so now, that's literally the story that we talked about last week, the rich young ruler, right? And now this week, we have a camel going through the eye of a needle. We have a guy that shows up, uh, unexpected, not who you would expect Jesus to be reaching out to, ministering to, a guy that actually compares to two stories from last week. Last week, we saw the adventures and missing the point that the disciples went through. We have, we have the rich young ruler. He missed the point that Jesus was more valuable than his riches. And so he did not follow Jesus. The disciples missed the point in last week's passage of why Jesus had to suffer, and they were confused. But then the one guy in last week's passage that saw Jesus for who he was was the blind guy, Bartimaeus. He had insight that the others did not have, and he saw Jesus and saw the point of what Jesus was doing. But now we have Zacchaeus in Luke 19. And Zacchaeus is both a rich man and a lost man. And if you look at Zacchaeus, you, you, you pull up the resumes of the rich young ruler and Zacchaeus. And who's the safer bet to follow Jesus? Well, the rich young ruler has already said to Jesus, and nobody argued with him when he said it, that he has followed the law, that he has respect and he was respected and kept the law. Meanwhile, Zacchaeus is not just a tax collector, he's the chief tax collector in the area. He's like extra bad, extra crooked, extra fraudulent. And, and you look at those two guys compared and you think, well, who's going to follow Jesus? If it's hard for rich man, rich young ruler to follow Jesus, it's got to be even harder for Zacchaeus to follow Jesus. But then Zacchaeus is actually, in the end, much more like the blind man than he is like the rich young ruler. And that's what we'll see today. We're going to unpack the whole dinner party that Jesus has with Zacchaeus. Because first, Jesus is entering into Jericho. And as he enters into Jericho, 
Zacchaeus is looking for him, and Jesus calls to Zacchaeus. And then he has dinner. And then comes the parable that we'll look at today in verses 10 through, or 11 through 27, is the parable that Jesus sits down and tells people at Zacchaeus' dinner table. So we'll go all the way, Luke 19, 1 through 27, and we'll see these three points, that Jesus is quick to save the repentant, that Jesus is quick to reward the faithful, and that Jesus does condemn the unfaithful. They're all there, and it's all clear. Verse 1 of chapter 19 of Luke. He entered into Jerusalem, or sorry, he entered into Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. Luke doesn't accidentally tell the story this way. Luke knows what he's doing. Luke has just recorded the story of the rich young ruler, and he emphasized the riches with the rich young ruler. And he's again, at the very first description of Zacchaeus, emphasizing the riches. He's building a clear contrast between these two rich men, the rich young ruler and Zacchaeus. Verse 3, he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. Now, we all like to pick on Zacchaeus as being a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. But there's more to the story than just that Zacchaeus was wee, was small. But Zacchaeus was not necessarily seeking to follow Jesus. Zacchaeus was still in the stage of seeking to figure out who Jesus was. Zacchaeus did not climb the tree so that he could follow. Zacchaeus climbed the tree so that he could see who Jesus was. He was undecided. He, had, he was interested, but he was undecided. He wanted to hear more, and he wanted to see more. That's significant. Verse 4, So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. I keep stopping. I'm like reading one verse at a time and stopping, but it's for, for a good reason. I, I'm going to take you back to um, verse 35 of Luke 18. As Jesus drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. And so you have these two incidences that are maybe the same day, maybe days apart, but one is just outside Jericho and one is just inside Jericho. And both times you have these people that have a problem with seeing, but in their problem with seeing, they see things that other people don't see. And so that's why I say Zacchaeus is like the rich young ruler, but he's a contrast to the rich young ruler. Zacchaeus' response to Jesus is much more like blind Bartimaeus, is that in his inability to physically see Jesus, he is seeking Jesus and being sought by Jesus. And that's what really matters most. So Jesus came to the place. He looked up in the tree and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they, the crowd, when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. So as we unpack this story of Jesus being quick to save the repentant, we're going to ask a few questions. Uh, where are we in this story? Not just where are we physically, but in the timeline of Jesus. Uh, who's here? Who are the key figures in this story? What's Jesus doing in this story? And then finally, what's the response to Jesus? And any, in any conversation you have with Jesus, you can kind of ask these four questions and get a glimpse of what's predominantly going on here. Where are we? We're in Jericho. Jericho is an important city, uh, not just in the New Testament, but in the Old Testament. Most people, when they think of Jericho, think of my son. No, I'm just kidding. You probably don't. But when you think of Jericho, you think of Joshua fought the battle of Jericho, right? Walls came tumbling down, that whole thing. Anytime somebody learns that our son's name is Jericho, that's what they automatically assume that we named him that because the wall came tumbling down. That's that's not why. But Jericho is important in the book of Joshua. It's important later in the Old Testament. It's important all through the New Testament. There's some really cool stuff that happens in Jericho. And this is just another one of those stories. Um, when we went to Jericho in a um, trip with, uh, with a few people from the church years ago, probably 
I don't know, like eight or nine years ago. Wow, it's been a long time. Uh, we went to Jericho. And, you know, in Jericho, the, the famous thing that you have to see is you got to see the sycamore tree, right? And there's big sycamore trees in Jericho, so you could stop and take pictures and say, hey, look, it's a sycamore tree in Jericho. It's not the one that Zacchaeus climbed, but it's cool. It's a sycamore tree. But Jericho was, is known. Now, they take the reputation. As you walk into the ancient city of Jericho, they now call themselves the longest continually populated city in, or the oldest continuously populated city in the world. Because not long after Joshua fought the battle of Jericho, the city of Jericho was reestablished as a part of the nation of Israel. And people have lived in that small area of Jericho for many, many centuries, the, the oldest city in the world, they call themselves. Now, Jericho is the home of not just this blind beggar, but Zacchaeus. But also important in the story, Jericho is only a few miles away from Jerusalem. And it's, it's about a day's journey now from Jericho to Jerusalem. And Jesus has said a couple times in, this, in these passages that he's on his way to Jerusalem. And we learn in verse 11 that the story he tells, the parable he tells in this setting with, with Zacchaeus, is because he's about to go to Jerusalem. If you look down in your Bible, look at what happens next. We, we have the parable of the Minas. That's what we're going to talk about later. But verse 28 and following is Jesus literally entering into Jerusalem. And when Jesus enters into Jerusalem, this is the, this is the time. This is the last time before his crucifixion. So this is the last stop that Jesus makes before he enters Jerusalem for the final time. This is within a week, most likely, of the crucifixion at this point. He enters into, um, into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. This is a day or two before this, entering into Jericho, stays a few days in Jericho, heals a blind man, saves Zacchaeus, has this dinner party, and then boom, back to Jerusalem. So this is, this is like a week to go before the crucifixion in the timeline. It's a significant period of salvation history. Also, talking about Jericho being a major city, one other thing to know. Jericho was one of three major cities that, that were the home of tax districts. And so you know from historical cultural research that, you, that there were actually chief tax collectors operating out of Jericho, like Zacchaeus. So Zacchaeus, as a chief tax collector in one of the three major tax districts, was operating a, a, his operation. He oversaw multiple tax collectors in smaller towns all around. So Jericho was a major enough city to have a chief tax collector. Um, but who is Zacchaeus? Well, Zacchaeus is not just a short guy. He's a crook. And guys, I, I'm not saying anything mean about him. He, he affirms it himself. He says to Jesus... The people that I've defrauded, I'm going to repay fourfold. He acknowledges his fraud. All the people around him know he's a sinner, which is why the people were bickering about Jesus entering into his home. They're like, how could, how could Jesus go and dine with this sinner over here? And it's not just because of the cultural uh, stigma around tax collectors. Tax collectors were hated. They were ethnically, they were Jews. They were sons of Abraham. But they worked for Rome. They worked for the evil empire that was occupying Israel. And so for a Jew to then work for Rome under the protection of Roman soldiers to take money from other Jews, that was betrayal. That was why people hated them. And it wasn't just that. It was that they continuously, regularly exacted more money out of the people than what was actually due. And so they say, okay, you owe this much in taxes, and some of it would actually go to Rome, and some of it they would keep and pocket for themselves. And some of it they would give to their boss, who is the chief tax collector, Zacchaeus. So he is getting rich, and Matthew says he's rich. We also know he's rich because of what he offers to pay back at the end. Now, I don't know how much riches you have, but this guy willingly said, I'm going to give up half of what I got. And beyond giving up half of what I got, if I have cheated to gain any level of my riches, I'm going to pay back four times. So if I cheated somebody out of $100, I'm going to give them $400. I'm going to pay it back four times what I took from them. That, that's significant. He, this is a large sum of money he's talking about. He's going to give that $400 first to all the people that he stole money from, and then out of what's left, he's going to cut it in half and give it to the poor. This guy has incredible resources. So he is 
in accordance with Jesus' story from last week, he's a camel. He's a camel trying to enter the kingdom of God through the eye of the needle. But what matters with, G- with, with Zacchaeus is not just who Zacchaeus was, but who Jesus is. Why did Zacchaeus want to see Jesus? We have some ideas. We, we don't know for sure, but we know that Zacchaeus was hated by society. So maybe he was sick of that. We know that Zacchaeus was, was a cheat and a fraud, and therefore he was hopefully convicted by his sin. That seems to be uh, what's going on here. At least that happens at dinner. He's convicted of his sin. Whether he's convicted when he climbs a tree or not, I don't know. Zacchaeus also knows, and everybody knew, Jesus had this radical openness to tax collectors. It was kind of weird, and it clearly made other people uncomfortable. Just a couple weeks ago, we were talking about the distinguishment between the Pharisee and the tax collector in the temple. And Jesus tells a story about a Pharisee and tax collector. The Pharisee is full of self-righteousness, praying, oh God, thank you that I'm not like that guy over here who's such a sinner. Well, that guy over there that was such a sinner was a tax collector, like Zacchaeus. And he was over there beating his chest, God be merciful to me, a sinner. Not only had Jesus just told that story, he had called to himself this guy named Matthew. Now, first century Israel was not an incredibly densely populated area. There was not just a ton of people everywhere around. And there were not a ton of tax collectors. So most likely, given the number of people and the number of tax collectors, even though we don't know exactly what city or district Matthew operated in, most likely Zacchaeus at least knew who Matthew was. And so that, that, that kind of shades the story a little bit too. To say that Zacchaeus, here he is, a boss. he could have been Matthew's boss for all we know. But Zacchaeus is climbing a tree to see the man who had already called a tax collector to himself and called him to a radical life of kingdom living. And so Zacchaeus, he climbed the tree. First of all, all it says about him, first of all, is he wanted to see who Jesus was. That step of curiosity. That step of curiosity is what starts him along this path in which Jesus literally drags him through the eye of the needle. But in the end... Zacchaeus, whatever were his reasons, whether it was his wealth being unsatisfying, him being tired of being rejected by society, him being convicted of his sin, him just having this general fascination with Jesus, whatever happened, he was open that day. But then the question, what is Jesus doing? Guys, Jesus doesn't just idly walk down the street with no idea what comes next. Jesus' actions are full of intention. And Jesus was seeking Zacchaeus as Zacchaeus was seeking Jesus. And we know that from the story. Because Jesus looked up in the tree and he saw a guy that just wanted to get a glimpse of him. Luke doesn't record Zacchaeus as wanting to radically give up everything to follow Jesus. Zacchaeus seemed to have been undecided about that at the point. But then Jesus, with all of Zacchaeus' seeking of Jesus, Jesus seeks Zacchaeus. Jesus looks up in the tree and says, Zacchaeus, I must stay at your house today. It was not actually Jesus inviting himself over for dinner. It was more than that. Now, I don't know all of the customs of first century dinner parties or first century house guests, but I'm going to assume it's at least somewhat similar to the 21st century, and that is that you don't just walk down the street picking out random strangers and saying, hey, I have to stay at your house today. I hope you're good with that. Like, I don't do that. Maybe you do that. I've never tried it. But it works for Jesus. It works for Jesus to say, hey, I'm coming over for dinner. What, what's cooking? What, what we got? And he says he's, he's not just having dinner. He says he's staying there. And so try that sometimes. See if it works for you. It's never worked for me, but I, I mean, I haven't tried. But Jesus is bold with Zacchaeus. Jesus is ready for Zacchaeus. Jesus is not surprised by Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus is climbing a tree to get to Jesus, and all the while, Zacchaeus does not fully understand that Jesus, in seeking Zacchaeus, has not just climbed a tree, he's descended from heaven to come and to seek and to save that which was lost. See, Luke tells the story in such a way that he sees Zacchaeus as an object lesson for just the point of the whole reason Jesus is here. Why did Jesus come? To sum it up in one sentence, why did Jesus come? To seek and to save that which was lost. 
And, and who does he say that about? Zacchaeus. This guy is the ultimate example of who Jesus came to save. A little guy that couldn't even see him on his own, that was rejected by society, that nobody wanted to go over to his house for dinner until Jesus showed up, and then those guys kind of followed him around. That's who Jesus came to save. The ones that were rejected, the ones that didn't have it all together, the ones that were dealing with sin. But now what is Zacchaeus' response? Because, first of all, we need to know, Jesus' seeking of Zacchaeus is much more significant than Zacchaeus' seeking of Jesus. This is, this is how we need to know and understand the gospel. Uh, people don't get convicted of sin in a vacuum. People don't get convicted of sin just for no reason. People get convicted of sin because the Holy Spirit is at work in them and because of the proclamation of the gospel. So Zacchaeus needed to see Jesus, hear Jesus, follow, he needed to see, hear, understand what Jesus was calling him to, and then came the repentance of the sin. And so where we fall in this story is that we are to be like Jesus in seeking out the lost. We are to be his representatives to the lost. But we recognize as we're his representatives, it's not really us that do the heavy lifting in that. It's the Spirit of God. Jesus didn't have a great apologetic sermon planned for Zacchaeus that day. Jesus just had himself. And what we need to do in our ministry to people is to present Jesus as he is, as the Son of God who came to save sinners, who died on the cross because sinners have committed sins that leave them condemned. And you see, Zacchaeus gets repentance of sin. This is how I know, because of his response. He has two parts to his response. Number one, I'm giving half of what I got to the poor. And number two, if I've stolen from anyone, I'm paying them back four times. Now, the law required if you stole money to pay back what you stole plus a fifth. That was, that was the Mosaic law. What's interesting is if you stole livestock, it's exactly what Zacchaeus said. If you stole livestock from somebody, according to Exodus 22, you would pay back four times what you stole. You stole one cow, you give them four cows in return. And that's, that's the offer that Zacchaeus is making. I will obey the Mosaic law, and I'll pick the higher number. Instead of, instead of paying back 1.2, what I owe plus one-fifth, I'm going to pay back four times what I took. And that is radical repentance. And it's also radical generosity. Because the radical repentance comes in paying back what he fraudulently took. But the radical generosity comes with what's left he's going to give to the poor, half of it. Now, Jesus did not look at him and say, no, 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 the rule for rich guys is sell everything and follow the poor. And it's like, if you're the rich young ruler, you're thinking, well, you told me it was everything. You told me I had to sell everything. This dude pays back his debts and pays extra, but then he still keeps something. He keeps half of what's left. So why does he get to keep something? I don't get to keep anything. And that's the difference with what Jesus is revealing about the hearts and the idols of the heart within the rich young ruler and Zacchaeus. Because, see, the rich young ruler was, said he was ready to follow Jesus. He was there. He said, what must I do? And Jesus said, well, follow the law. And he's like, ah, oh, I got that. And Jesus said, well, okay, then sell what you have and give it to the poor. And the rich young ruler walks away sad because he valued his riches over Jesus. Zacchaeus did not have to receive that request from Jesus. Zacchaeus was convicted of his sin and evidenced it. See, Jesus asked of the rich young ruler because Jesus did not see repentance and conviction of sin from the rich young ruler. And so Jesus was poking, poking holes in what he valued most. But for Zacchaeus, Jesus doesn't say, okay, Zacchaeus, if you want to follow me, what are you going to do about your riches? It, there's, there's no, Luke doesn't give us any any precursing conversation here. It just shows that Zacchaeus is walking around with the heaviness of the conviction of his sin, and he knows he's got to do something about it. And he sees the righteous Jesus, and the righteous Jesus actually wants to, to send, to come and have dinner with this lowly, crooked tax collector. And Zacchaeus is so discomforted by that, that he says, I've got to do something about this sin burden that I'm carrying. And so he is in a hurry to look at Jesus after he's received the mercy of Jesus, and the only mercy he's received at this point is just the dinner. 
But Zacchaeus receives the mercy of Jesus by Jesus wanting to enter into his home and enter into his life. And that radical experience with mercy leaves Zacchaeus with this radical need to repent, to turn around, to walk away from the sin that has a hold on his life in the form of his money. Is God calling you to sell everything you have and give it to the poor like the rich young ruler? Maybe not. But God is calling all of us to radical repentance, to radical generosity. And doesn't mean he might be calling you to give more of whatever resource you have. Yes, it probably does. Because growth in Christ means growth in these things. God is calling each of us to give a little bit more than we gave when we first started following him. God is calling each of us to give a little bit more of ourself, our time, our resources, our influence, and yes, our money. Give more and more to him as we walk in more and more obedience of him. Now, some of y'all have caught on to the fact that in January and February, we've talked about money a lot. That was not like a plan. Hey, we're going to start out 2021 and just talk about money, it's, or 2022. But this is where Luke is right now. Because as Jesus is preparing to enter into Jerusalem, he's starting to tell more and more parables about money. I, listen, I'm not the one that's, that wants to talk about money all the time. That's Jesus. Jesus does it a lot. And in this section of Luke, he keeps poking in at what matters most. And so for so many of us, the obstacle to wholehearted devotion to Jesus is our own comfort, our own resources, our own money. Because we want to protect ourselves. We want to live with some level of security. And that's what stops us from going all in. And so, yeah, Jesus is confronting that. And he's confronting that in the story of Zacchaeus, and Zacchaeus is the one that gets it. He doesn't have to be, to be poked like the rich young ruler is. Zacchaeus is ready to repent, ready to give up more of his money, to give back what, what he stole, and to give up more for the sake of the poor. A genuine experience with Jesus leads to radical conviction of sin. And a genuine experience with Jesus leads to radical discipleship that gives up everything else for the sake of following him. Is Jesus calling you to be the rich young ruler and sell everything you have and give it to the poor? Probably not. Is Jesus calling you to be willing to give up everything for his sake? Absolutely yes. And how that looks in your life, how that looks in your family, that, that's a decision that I can't fully tell you. I can't tell you this is what you should give up for the sake of Jesus. But I'm telling you, if there's something that's hard to give up, it probably means you should give it up. Because Jesus said, take up your cross. Jesus said, give up your family. And Jesus told the rich man to give up all of his money. And so if we're going to truly follow Jesus in the way he has called us, it's, it's everything. It's all in. And that's what Zacchaeus is ready to do. Zacchaeus climbed a tree and Jesus came from heaven. Zacchaeus' seeking of Jesus did not match Jesus' seeking of Zacchaeus. And so the question is, are you seeking Jesus? I hope so. Are you seeing Jesus for who he is, who he reveals himself to be? I hope so. But know that if you see Jesus for who he, who he has revealed himself to be in Scripture, it is because he has sought you. And he has initiated the plan of salvation with you to save you from your sin. Okay, so here we have this dinner. And Zacchaeus is demonstrating repentance. And then Jesus says, you know what, guys? I'm going to tell a story. This is just what Jesus does. He likes stories. So Jesus says, I'm going to tell a story. It's fascinating that the story actually has a lot of similarities with a real historical story about a would-be king of, of Israel. There's a guy named Archelaus. Archelaus is the son of Herod the Great and the brother of Herod Antipas. And so there's multiple Herods in Scripture, and it gets confusing because there's one Herod at Jesus' birth, and there's one Herod at Jesus' death. There are two different Herods. Well, Archelaus is right in between. And Archelaus tried to become the king a few years before Jesus told this story. And so as we're reading the story, I'm going to come back later, and I'm going to tell you the similarities. But Archelaus is a real historical figure that everybody knew he was building a connection to this real historical figure of a guy that traveled to a foreign land to receive a kingdom and then come back and reign over it. So verse 11 of Luke 19. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable. Because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. So managing expectations, that's what Jesus is doing here. 
He knows when he steps foot into Jerusalem, they're going to expect the kingdom to come immediately. And is Jesus right in believing that? Yeah, that's the whole donkey thing. Like that, That's the whole thing. They, they're saying, hey, here's the king. This is the inauguration. The king, the Messiah, is coming into Jerusalem, and we're ready to make him the king. And Jesus is trying to set up his closest followers for this expectation that the kingdom of God is already here and not yet fully realized. That there's going to be a level of in-between where everybody's going to know, all of Jesus' followers are going to know he is the rightful king. But he's not going to be established in fullness in his kingdom. And it's not going to look like he has authority. It's not going to look like he's reigning because it's going to look like the kingdoms of the world are still in control. That's where we live now. So, so the, the time frame of this story is for us. We know Jesus is the king, but we don't see Jesus sitting on the throne every day in complete control of everything. We see kingdoms of this world still wreaking havoc in our life. And so we live in the in-between like what he's talking about here. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. Now, stop. We're going to stop right there in verse 14. So the first half there is out. This is the, the setup for the story. And guys, this is the story of Archelaus. Archelaus was wicked. Archelaus killed 3,000 Jews during his father's reign. He killed 3,000 Jews at the Passover because of something that happened relating to the Passover in Jerusalem. Josephus, the Jewish historian, he tells this story of Archelaus that is just tragic. He's a wicked, wicked man. So, but then Archelaus' dad, Herod the Great, dies. Archelaus takes an entourage with him to go to visit Caesar in Rome. And the goal is he goes to visit Caesar in Rome and tells Caesar, I am the rightful king. So now give me my father's throne and make me king. And then he's going to come back. But with Archelaus is not just his supporters, but his adversaries. Because again, he killed 3,000 Jews. He was violent. He was wicked. He was evil. And so there was a Jewish entourage that followed him to Rome to campaign against him, just like is described in verse 14. Some of the citizens of the kingdom did not like him, so they followed him to the foreign land to say, we don't want this guy to be our king. That's exactly what the Jews did in, in the generation before Jesus is telling the story with the man Archelaus. So people would have known that story. People would have made the connection there. But Jesus twists it around, because what, what actually ended up happening with Archelaus is Caesar did not give him the full kingdom, but actually split the kingdom and gave him a smaller portion of it. And Archelaus did not have a long reign. He was not well respected by anybody, Roman or Jews, and his reign was ultimately a failure and limited. But Jesus is going to twist the story around. And he's going to twist the story around to make the nobleman who goes away to a foreign country to come back a king, he's going to make him into a positive figure instead of a negative figure. And so the, the, his listeners, I tell the story of Archelaus to tell you that his listeners think they have an idea of where Jesus is going with this. And he's going to twist it and take it a different direction than what they might expect. So verse 15. When he returned, having received the kingdom, they were like, oh, well, that's, that's a little different than the Archelaus story. Maybe he's not talking about Archelaus. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first servant came before him saying, Lord, your mina, one mina, has made ten minas more. And he said to him, well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over ten, servant, over ten cities. The second servant came, said, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, and you are to be over five cities. Then another servant came, saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief, because I was afraid of you. Because you are a severe man, you take what you did not deposit, and you reap what you did not sow. And he said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking in what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has ten. And they said to him, but Lord, he has ten minas. And he said, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. 
But as for these enemies of mine, who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. So as we unpack this parable, we're going to unpack it in three sections. The people, the purpose, and the principles. The people in the parable, we have the nobleman, right? The nobleman who becomes king. But then we also have ten servants that are listed. One mina per servant. Ten servants are listed at the beginning, then three are singled out at the end. But he gives one mina each to ten different servants, and only three of them are are recorded in the story of, of, as having reported back. Uh, then there are the citizens. The citizens who, in verse 14, don't want him to be king, and by verse 27 are being slaughtered because he is the king. And so how do we understand this in light of these people? Well, first, Amina was about 100 days, 100 days of wages for a laborer. Caught three months, three months of income, was one mina. So each of these 10 guys were given three months of income and told, manage it, do what you want with it. One guy went and got, a, got, got it returned at 10 times. It took one mina and turned it into 10 mina. Actually, turned it into 11. Here's your mina back, plus 10 more. And one guy took one, and it got five additional, so he gave back six. And one guy feared the master, had a wrong view of the master, thought that the master was being unfair, and therefore he hid it, and he just returned back that one. And so the purpose, though, is to explain that kingdom reward will be given. Kingdom reward will be given. Jesus says at the end of his summation, I tell you that everyone who has, more will be given, and from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Now it's important to say, I introduced this parable as saying this is how we live in sort of the already not yetness of the kingdom. This is how we live in the in-between where we know Jesus is king, but it doesn't look like he's king every day. This is also important to say this follows the salvation story of Zacchaeus. This parable is not about entering the kingdom of God. That, That has to be abundantly clear. You do not earn your way into the kingdom of God with your faithfulness. So, You enter the kingdom of God the way Zacchaeus does. You're sought out by Jesus, and Jesus miraculously pulls a camel through the eye of a needle. That's how Jesus saves Zacchaeus. That's what the story says. Now we have a story of what it means to live in the kingdom. See, the gospel isn't about earning your way in, but the gospel is not opposed to faithful followership once you're in. Okay, You don't work your way to salvation, but you do obey your way to salvation maturity in Christ once you receive salvation. Salvation comes by grace alone through faith. And then obedience is an act of effort. Grace is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. One way to understand it. So this is about the effort we make as we're following and growing in maturity in Christ. And brothers and sisters, those of us who have been miraculously pulled through the eye of a needle for the sake of our own salvation, this is where the rubber meets the road for us. Are we being faithful in what Jesus gives us? Because at the end of the day, this one's for us. The Zacchaeus story, if you're a believer, the Zacchaeus story is for you to remember exactly how miraculous it was the way that you were saved. But it's also a story for you to remember exactly how miraculous it can be when you deliver the gospel to others and you join Jesus in the task to seek and to save that which was lost. But then, what are you doing to steward what he gives you. Notice that there are two servants that receive commendation. One receives ten cities and the other receives five. And Jesus does nothing to compare them to each other. But put yourself in servant number two's shoes. He's going to feel like a failure someday. Because in a vacuum, you think you take one mean. We don't know how, how much time passed, but it seems like it's a long time. To take one mina into ten or to take one mina into five seems like that's a lot lot of investing and growth and whatever. But think about if you're the guy that you've been given one mina and at the end of a number of years you've got five and you think, man, I did good. And then you look at your neighbor and he's got twice as much as you do. You're going to feel kind of crummy. You're going to kind of feel like a failure. Like, I thought I was doing good over here with earning five minas, but this guy, he's got twice as much as I did. When the king comes back 
He doesn't look at the guy that got 10 and say, boy, you did a great job. Hey, dude that got five, you kind of just did okay. No, he commends both of them. He commends both of them for faithful service, for building the kingdom of God with what they were given. He doesn't say, hey, this guy, he's a varsity Christian, and this dude, he's JV over here because he's just not quite good enough. No, he commends both of them and rewards both of them because they're faithful with what they are given. And so the principles we take away from this, is, number one, Jesus delegates responsibilities. Jesus, as the king, gives authority to us to manage his resources of the kingdom. That being the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have been entrusted with that deposit. Every believer stewards the gospel. It's a good deposit that Paul tells Timothy we have to guard, we have to protect, and we have to use to invest wisely. We don't guard it by, by hiding it in a handkerchief like that wicked servant. We guard it by making sure the content of the gospel is clear and presenting it and highlighting it and demonstrating it to the world so that we can see one mina turn into ten, so that we can see one mina turn into five. Every believer is given the same deposit of the gospel, but every believer also receives varying gifts varying opportunities. We weren't all born in the same place with the same opportunities. We weren't all wired with the, the same way. We weren't all given the same aptitudes, and we were not all given the same gifts of the Spirit. But we are faithful with, we are called to be faithful with what we have been given, to be good stewards of the opportunities in front of us, and not to look at the guy next to us and say, boy, he seems like he's doing more. Well, your comparison is Jesus, not that dude. Ten Mina dude, yeah, he looks great, but he's not your standard. Jesus is the standard, and both Ten Mina guy and Five Mina guy fall way short of that standard. So don't worry so much. Here's a, here's a lesson for the Christian life. Don't worry so much about comparing yourself to either Ten Mina guy or One Mina guy. Boy, I'm doing a lot better than that guy over here, or man, I'm just really crummy next to this guy over here. Worry about following Jesus with what you have been given the opportunities in front of you, and the gifts that have been given to you. But not just does the king delegate responsibility, and not just do believers have the opportunity to steward the gospel using our gifts, but Jesus the king comes back to settle accounts. And every, everyone will give an account, believer and non-believer. And so there, there is a truth that the, those that receive Jesus do at the end of our days we do sit before the judgment seat of Christ also. It's not just unbelievers that get whisked away into eternal punishment and condemnation in hell, although that's a real thing. And that's, that's pictured in this passage. Those citizens that reject the king are slaughtered. Those citizens that reject King Jesus will know who he is in the end, but it will be too late for him. It will be too late and they will be ushered off into condemnation and punishment. So while it's not too late for us, we need to be like Zacchaeus and just be looking and ready to receive and ready to repent. And once we receive, then we pay attention to the fact that Jesus now calls us to steward. And even those of us that are believers will stand before the throne of God and give an account for our actions. And in the end, believers will be covered by the blood of Jesus but we will still give account for our faithfulness and be rewarded accordingly. We will not, believers will not stand condemned before the throne of God, but there will be varying levels of reward. And in the end, we will see where we have failed and we'll see how Christ's blood covers that. But we will also be rewarded, some of us with 10 cities, some of us with five cities, however that analogy plays out in heaven. There's, there's a real truth to us being called as God's sons and daughters to reign with him in all eternity. There's real, there's real reward that we are living for. But are you on your way towards reward or towards condemnation? I'm going to ask the team to come up. We've, we've got two more songs for today, so we're doing a little bit more singing at the end today. And before we do that, I want you to think about something for me. When Jesus looks at you and he says, well done, good and faithful servant, which he will say to those who believe. What will your response be? Will it be, thanks, I, I really thought I was doing okay? No. 
The response to well done, good and faithful servant, the only reasonable response is, worthy are you, O Lamb, who, to receive honor and glory and power. But then also, maybe, maybe even going a little deeper for those of us that maybe aren't sure what it would be like to stand before the throne of God. Because you're still living in that dynamic of, boy, I hope my good outweighs my bad. Boy, I hope I've done good enough to make it in. I hope I've done the right things. I've given the right amount. I've served enough. If your answer before the throne of God is, Jesus, look what I've done, then you're not going to get in. The answer is, God, look what Jesus has done. Look what Jesus has done for me. That's the entrance into the gospel. That's the good deposit that we guard and we steward. And guys, God expects you to grow. He's a God of grace. He's a God of mercy that welcomes sinner and is close to the brokenhearted and close to those that fail. But for us that fail, that have been picked up, that have been those fat camels dragged through the eyes of the needle, he does expect you to follow. He does expect you to grow. He does expect you to do something with the gifts he's given us. And so my challenge for you today is, what's that new thing for you? What's that new thing for your family, for yourself, that added step of following Jesus? Through service, through giving more, through sharing more about his gospel, through communing more with him in his word and prayer, there's a next step for all of us to go deeper. And he is calling us to grow right now. So let's stand. Let's worship him together. In the darkness we were waiting Without hope, without light Till from heaven you came running There was mercy in your eyes To fulfill the law and prophets To a virgin came the word From a throne of endless glory To a cradle in the
never fails me all my days I've been held in your hands from the moment that I wake up until I lay my head I will sing of the goodness of God and all my life you have been faithful and all my life you have been so so good with every breath that I goodness of God. I love your voice. You have led me through the fire and darkest night. You are close like no other. I've known you as a father. Today to proclaim that you are the goodness of God. And when we sing of God's goodness running after us, we see that in the person of Jesus. That it wasn't about Zacchaeus' seeking, but it was about Jesus' seeking. It wasn't about Zacchaeus' climbing, but Jesus' descending. And Jesus, you have descended into this place for us today by going willingly to the cross bearing our sin and our shame and then rising again so that we could actually stand in your presence today. We proclaim the goodness of God in the person of Jesus as our only standing, our only rightful standing before God himself. So Father, we thank you for your blessing. We thank you for your gospel. We thank you for the salvation that we have received. And as we go out, Father, send us in peace on the basis of Jesus' finished work. Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now receive the blessing from the Lord. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.
Go in peace.